Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Drew Estes, the portfolio manager at Banyan Capital, a firm that has been around since the late 1980s. Drew joined Banyan in 2016 and then took control of the business in 2019. Drew has brought his own brand of long-term focus to build permanent wealth for his clients. In this engaging conversation, we covered the history of Banyan and how Drew came to control the firm, portfolio construction, including concentration and the ideal type of company, Drew's unique perspective on client communications, his affinity for insurance companies, including Berkshire Hathaways, and how he goes about finding cheap compounders. Drew discussed a number of securities in this conversation. The only one I own is Berkshire Hathaway. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Drew Estes of Banyan Capital. So Banyan's been around since the late 1980s, but you could, took control in 2019 can you give us some context for Banyan's history and how you ended up buying the business? Yeah, so uh, so Banyan was founded by Gary Watkins in 1987. He had he'd been a broker for um, the early part of his career and thought that there was a better way to manage money, so he wanted to start an RIA. So he, he launched Banyan in November of 87, which was ended up being pretty bad timing right after the October crash. But uh, so he launched with $1 million under management, and... Um, built a very successful business. And um, I obviously didn't make it to Banyan until much later. Uh, it was 2016. Um, before that, I had been, I'd been at a, in law school at the University of Alabama and pretty quickly realized that, you know, I, I enjoyed the, the study of law, but did not enjoy the practice of law. And I was passionate about investing. So I was um, working for a gentleman at an insurance company at the time named David Robinson and explained to him my epiphany. You know, if I could if I could find a way to to invest, you know, for a living, then I'd never really have to work a day in my life. And 
he suggested that I look into the CFA program, which at the time I had no idea what it was, but um, I ended up ordering the books and, and going through the program while I was in law school. And it ended up being pretty life changing because I don't think I would have found my way to Banyan otherwise. Um, I, a few years later, I, I met a gentleman named Alan McKnight, who was the CIO and still is the CIO of Regions Bank. And and he introduced me to some people in Atlanta that were value investors, um, John McCullum, Jay Douglas, and um, Peter Montgomery. And all of them were so generous with their time and spending it with me, who was just a, a student and, you know, didn't didn't really have any prospects. I was just just trying to, to figure out what what my future would hold. And um, they introduced me to Gary because they, they knew he had a, a great business. He was a practicing value investor, which at the time I already knew that's what I wanted to do. I'd been bitten by the value bug, you know, pretty early on. And they introduced us. Um, he had a succession problem. You know, he, he built a great business, but he he didn't have a successor. And um, so I went and talked to him a couple times and we really hit it off and had a, a shared philosophy. So I came to work with him in 2016 after graduating um, from law school and you know, we uh, we worked together for a little over two years. And then at the beginning of 2019, he sold Banyan to myself and um, a partner at the time, Alec Nabolsi. Um, and we had a lot of success together, um, had a lot of fun, you know, uh, um, you know, building the business further from from Gary's legacy. And then at uh, during the pandemic, it was it was tough on on my partner, Alec. He had three young children as um as I'm, you know, it was tough on a lot of people and, and he wanted to, to make a change in his life. So he, he approached me about buying his interest out and which I did at the beginning of this year. So now it is, is myself and Charlene, my office manager and uh, right hand woman. Uh, she, she's been here since 2007 and, and we run the business together now and we'll be bringing on a new hire in the middle of next year. So we're a, a two person team growing on going on three. Nice. Well, that's a wonderful story. Yeah. And um, yeah, I know this firm has owned Berkshire stock since the mid nineties. Uh, I know you obviously weren't there then, but I'm curious uh, about if you know the story of how that came to be, given that in the mid nineties, Buffett wasn't quite as well known as he is now. Yeah. He, you know, Buffett definitely wasn't the household name uh, in the, in the early nineties that he is today, but he was obviously well known amongst investors, especially any of anybody that ascribed to the the tribe of value investing, um, which Buffett, of course, is the the tribal leader, <laughs> if you will. So it doesn't surprise me that, that Gary bought Berkshire early on in in, um, in Banyan's and the story of Banyan, and he would go out to Omaha to the Berkshire meetings before they became the spectacle that they are today. I mean, now there's tens of thousands of people there, you know, at the time, there might've been a few hundred. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that, that Berkshire was an early addition to the portfolio. Um, but interestingly, uh, we actually own another stock called Markel, which is considered now the um, mini Berkshire. And we actually bought it or Gary bought Markel before he bought Berkshire. So he bought it in 1994. And, and it was because he was in Omaha at those Berkshire meetings. Um, you probably know this, but but Markel every Sunday, the, the Sunday immediately following the Saturday meeting, they have an event. Now there's a, a few hundred people there every year. Um, well, they, they started doing that very early in their um, their journey as a public company, and 
back then there, there was just a handful of people in the room and, and Gary ended up being one of them. And he, uh, he liked what he heard and, and he bought, he, so he ended up investing in Markel before he even bought Bercher. And it was a very, very fortunate um, thing for Banyan. You know, a lot of serendipity involved being at the right place, at the right time, and then having the foresight to invest in a, in a fairly new company or a company that's new to the public markets. Um, because we, we do owe a lot of our success to, to Markel and, and the folks in Richmond. So we're very grateful for them. Another great story. Yeah, we had Tom Gaynor on the podcast, and it's still one of my favorite interviews. Um, all the insights from you know Tom's very folksy demeanor. But uh, the, the thank you for sharing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And so you've taken control of this this uh, uh, firm and, and a track record that goes back to the early 90s. I'm interested if there are any material differences in your personal approach that you would highlight relative to kind of what existed before you took the reins. Yeah. So Gary was a value hound from day one. Uh, and, and so was I, I mean, it, it value investing that the philosophy of value investing either either hits you over the head like a, a pound of bricks and you're you're immediately bitten by the value bug if you will or or it, or it never will um and and it definitely bit me um so I, it just it just it just made intuitive sense that a stock that was out of favor would would offer better prospect prospective returns than a stock that was very much in favor and very popular so we had uh, a lot of overlap in philosophy from day one. Um, but what's important is that Gary, of course, evolved over his career. He he started out as more of a traditional Graham and Dodd cigar butt style investor, which for listeners that don't know what that means, it's it's you're, you're buying companies that that are not great, but they're they're very cheap. And you're just, you know, maybe it's worth a hundred dollars and you're buying it for fifty dollars and you just you just need the the price to value gap to close some, then you sell and you you move on to the next one. Um it's called cigar butt style investing because it's it's similar to following a gentleman on the sidewalk who's smoking a cigar and he gets it down to the last two puffs and throws it down and you come up behind him, pick it up, it's gross, it's soggy, but there's a couple puffs in it and it's free. So that's that's cigar butt investing. And and Gary made the the decision or, or or evolved to really have a preference for quality. You know, you, you buy a company that's worth a hundred dollars, um, and it might be trading at eighty dollars, but over five to ten years, it, the value is going to grow, and it might be worth two hundred or three hundred dollars. So, just a better way to go about it. And and I was fortunate in that he really pounded that into my head. Uh, early on, because as, as a lot of investors um, that are starting out in their career, especially if you've been bitten by the value bug, you have this tendency to really be seduced by very cheap stocks and and to not give enough weight to the quality aspect. And, and I'm very fortunate that Gary took his learnings over an entire career and pounded them into my mind, uh, you know, very, very early on in mind. So I didn't have to learn the lessons uh, with with quite as much pain as I otherwise would have. Consider yourself very lucky not to have had to deal with that transition <laughs> yeah. while managing client assets. That was that was a lot of fun for me personally. Um, well, now I, I will say it's not to say I haven't made the mistake. I am still seduced by cheap stock. It's a uh, at least now I, I recognize it as a bias of mine that I must be aware of and work around, as opposed to 
seeing it as a strength. Like I think a lot of people that are young in their career do, they, they see that their, their willingness to buy something very cheap and out of favor is as a strength, uh, you know, some, some positive behavioral attribute when in fact, it might just be a bias that you're, you're going to have to find a way to manage through your career. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And one of the things that struck me uh, about you was just some interesting ways that what you communicate with your clients and the way you phrase what you're trying to do. So in your marketing materials, for example, you talk about managing people's assets as if you were managing all of their wealth. What does that mean to you? And, and how does that impact how you make decisions? Yeah, the, we say that because in a way it's our reality. So for a lot of our clients, we, we do manage most of their wealth, if not all of their, their liquid net worth. So, um, so we have to think about it that way. Um, but it's also just a good business practice because it's, uh, it forces you to be prudent. Um, and, you know, people spend their entire lives sacrificing so that they can accumulate, you know, wealth for not only themselves, but for their kids and their grandkids. And, and to hand that over to someone to manage um, takes a, an extraordinary level of trust. And you, you just that trust is precious and you have to think of it that way and to just keep it front and center in your mind. that You know, this is you're trying to build something permanent and uh, this really matters for your clients. I just think it's just a good business practice. It's similar to the way Buffett runs Berkshire, even though Berkshire might be a small portion of most people's portfolio. He doesn't view it that way. He acts as if it's, you know, the people that are invested with him are his partners and, and they're all in and he must, um, he must take that into account. And I just think, again, I just think it's a good business practice. And another goal you have is to manage a portfolio as if your clients couldn't communicate you with, uh, with you for 10 years. How does that impact your process and strategy? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, at the end of the day, this is a business of trust, you know, the management of money, as I just alluded to, you know, someone sacrifices their whole life, saves their money, and then they hand it over to you to manage. And there, there's a lot of trust involved in that. And, and it can take years to earn that trust, if not decades. And, you know, you can lose it in a second with one poor decision. And I don't mean an investment mistake. You're going to make investment mistakes, but I just mean something that might not be honest or you're not fully telling the truth and, you know, a lie of omission, something like that. You, you just, just not worth it. it that, that trust is, is too difficult to earn and, and too precious to, to jeopardize. And so that we just, we just always think about trust because it is the, the core of any money management business. And, and we want to, we want to treat it with, um, with the respect that it deserves. But with that 10 year marker, are you trying to set your clients up with the expectation that, they should be looking at us at a, at a long-term return profile as opposed to maybe focusing on what's going on in the, in the short run. Is there also that element to it? Yeah, certainly it is. I mean, it, you need, if you're going to be a, a long-term investor, you, you have to have clients that have a long-term mentality too. I, you know, I've always heard that you build your home and then your home builds you. I think it's true of a business, right? You build your business and then your business builds you. So if you don't set yourself up to, to have long-term oriented clients, then you're not going to be a long-term oriented investor. If they're focused on a quarter or a month or something like that, then you're going to begin to focus on a quarter or a month. And, 
So it's, it is important that from the very beginning, you begin to, to talk in terms of decades, right? And, and, and get clients thinking in terms of decades, because that's how we invest. And it's just very important that, that we condition clients and attract the right type of clients that are also going to think that way. And in all of your letters, you sign off highlighting the importance of building permanent welfare clients. Why is that permanent such an important theme to you? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a phrase that Gary used. And I must admit, I really took it and latched onto it and ran with it. Uh, and, and now I, I probably get on everyone's nerves putting it in every single client letter and almost every single communication. But, you know, it's you know, repetition is, is a good thing. And it just it, not only does it does it continue to send the message home that we're, we're trying to do something that's permanent here. You know, we, we don't we don't want fleeting wealth on paper that's here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, we want companies that really, you know, have, have a lot of weight on the scale of value. And, and that's the type of thing we're looking for. Um, and, and it's also helpful to us, you know, because just putting it in there every single quarter, make sure that we're focused on the right thing. So it's a it's a two way street there. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. Great. Um, I, I really interesting to hear about the frameworks and the philosophies and the structure of the firm and the history of the firm. Now let's dive into your strategy. Love to hear about the types of stocks you own in terms of geography and market cap. You know, what, what does the portfolio look like today? Yeah. So technically we have a pretty broad universe. We don't have a lot of restrictions. Um, we can own bonds. We can own stocks. We can own large cap. We can own small caps. They don't have to be domiciled in the United States. Um, you know, but, but that being said, we, we do have a strong equity preference. We always have, um, we just, we just think that their, their equities are almost always a better investment than bonds. And this idea that, it's a way to reduce risk is it depends on how you view risk, right? If you, if you view risk as volatility, then of course bonds are less risky most of the time. But if you view risk at the likelihood of suffering a permanent loss of purchasing power, then, you know, bonds actually are, can be quite risky at times, um, much more risky than stocks. And in fact, that was the case, you know, just a, a few years ago when interest rates were, you know, it, it, essentially nothing, um, you know, pardon my language, but, you know, at the time we would tell clients, you know, bond investors are going to eat like a bird, but shit like an elephant. And we, we saw that in 2022. So we, we've off, we, we've, we've rarely owned a lot of bonds and we haven't owned any, any for years. Um, now we have about 9% of the portfolio in short-term treasury bills, but those really aren't even bonds because there's not any duration risk. It's just a cash alternative. Um, and as for our, our equities, uh, we, we tend to have a, um, a preference for large cap U.S. domiciled companies, um, simply because we're U.S. investors. So, so we understand them a little more and, and seeing that they're larger, it's, it's usually because they are great businesses, right? They, they tend to get big for a reason and they're, they have, they're a lot more established companies. So we like that about them. Um, 
That being said, we um, that's, that's changed a little bit of late. Our last three investments have not fit that mold. They have either been much smaller companies or non-U.S. domiciled. And it's not some top-down decision that we made. It's just that's where we found the opportunities. And, and the portfolio will, will evolve in a very bottom-up fashion based on that. And when you're investing in larger cap companies, especially with a small team, how do you think about the concept of edge and the need for an edge when investing in larger companies? Yeah, so so edge for listeners that may not be familiar with it, it's really just an advantage, right? Why are you able as an investor to identify a mispricing that for some reason others aren't seeing? Um, so what is your advantage in, in that particular area? Um, and an edge can come from a lot of things. It can be skill. It can be information. It can just be behavioral, a behavioral attribute of yours. Um, so most people think of edge in terms of information, right? I, I just, I know more about this stock than anybody else on earth. And, you know, I, I just, I don't think that that's as big of an edge as, as people make it out to be. I, I've actually found that, uh, returns tend to be inversely correlated to the size of my research file. <laughs> you know, if I, if I have a big research file, for some reason the stocks don't end up turning out that great. And if it's something that's small, it's because hey, I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This is going to be a great investment. It's crystal clear. And, and those tend to be the ones that work out the most. And we've had a lot of success in very large companies because of that. And I think it, it boils down to an edge being more of a, a time horizon type of, of arbitrage. There's just so many people in the markets today that define success based on how they do it in a given month or how they do it in a given quarter. So if you're able to train yourself and to have clients that can think of success over much longer timeframes, it allows you to, to step in when things are a little uncertain or there might be some some cloud over the company in the moment, but it's, it's going to be a great investment over say three, five or 10 years. And I think that's that can be a huge edge, and I think it's it's as big of an edge today as it probably ever has been. And you mentioned that traditionally focused on larger cap companies, and now are finding more investments that are attractive in the small cap world or smaller cap world. How do you go about kind of boiling the whole U.S. market ocean and covering enough of it with a small team? that allows you to unearth stocks that maybe weren't traditionally in the focus of, of the strategy? Yeah. I mean, well, I want to say that it's not that small caps weren't in the focus of the strategy. They always have They've always been a part of Banyan. They, they've been in Banyan's portfolio on and off. I mean, Markel was a very small cap stock and we bought it. It just so happens to be much larger today than it was. Um, it, so I'm just saying we have a preference for large cap companies, but, uh, you know, small caps come and go, but as to, to finding stocks and, as a small team, it's, you know, I mean, you can, we have an outstanding company list. So companies that, um, that we really like for a variety of reasons that check all the boxes, if you will, except for maybe price. And we pay a lot of attention to them. Um, and we're pretty focused as a as an investment firm in the sense that we only own 15 to 20 stocks at a time so if you're going to own let's just say 20 stocks and you're going to have turnover of about 10 percent a year which is roughly what 
what our turnover is, then you really only need two good ideas a year, you know, and, and that's manageable as a, as a one person team. And, um, you definitely don't need a horde of analysts to do it. Uh, and in fact, I, I would argue that, that most of the great investors over time didn't have a horde of analysts behind them. They, they tend to be either, either a one person, you know, kind of lone wolf type of investor or just have a very small lean team of, um, of researchers behind them. So it's, it's manageable. You just have to, to be focused and, um, you know, be methodical in your work. You can't, you can't just look at everything, right? You have to have some way to filter the universe down and usually some quality attributes will do that for you. So you have a pretty broad mandate and a pretty large universe. So I'm interested in, you know, how, what that, how that translates into a stock that you want to own you have a letter that's entitled the ideal investment. Maybe talk to me about the characteristics of the perfect or, or quintessential Banyan stock. Yeah. So we did, we wrote a letter um, in the second quarter of this year called the ideal investment. And it just boiled. We just tried to boil down what we meant by that. What, what would make an, an investment ideal based on our experience and, and the way we think about the world. And yeah, we, we boiled it down to seven attributes. Um, just to mention them, there was the it's a business that's uh, understandable, well financed, earning a high return on tangible capital employed um, from the production of a superior product with durable competitive advantages, um, serving an end market that is growing, so earnings can be reinvested, uh, managed by honest and competent people that will allocate capital wisely, and then seventh. As any great value, or as any value investor would say, you know, it must be available at a bargain price. You're not just going to pay pay any price for it. Um, so that, that's what we're looking for. But you know, investing is is all about trade offs. You know, if you're if you find something that's that satisfies the first six attributes of an ideal investment, it's not going to satisfy the seven. It's going to be too expensive. And if you find something that is it a bargain price, which as a value investor, we always need that. There's going to be a question about one of the other six attributes and, and you have to make a trade-off there and you have to make a wise or intelligent trade-off. And the way we look at it is, you know, we, you know, we want to assemble companies that have those ingredients. You know, there's always a doubt about one or two attributes, but they have the ingredients to be ideal. And then we want to patiently watch as they age, right? We'll invest and we just, we give them time to prove themselves. And most investments, to be frank, are going to age into something quite mediocre, right? They're not going to be ideal. And then some are going to just age very poorly. They're going to be rotten and you have to just toss them out. And then you're going to have a few that truly do age into ideal investments. And, and those are the ones that you, that you really have to hang on to. And it, it really doesn't take a whole lot of them to make an entire career, right? You just, you just need a few. Um, so again, we're, we're looking for the ideal investment, but we recognize that we're making trade-offs and that very few investments that we make are going to in fact prove out as, as ideal with the benefit of hindsight. And when I was looking for your, through your portfolio, it appeared to me that you're willing to own some stocks that look like kind of your traditional compounders that fit maybe as many of those definitions of the ideal investment as possible. And others that I think might have some obvious fundamental issues, but appear cheap. Maybe talk about how the, those two 
kind of traditional compounders and then maybe something with a little bit of hair on it, how they fit in the same portfolio. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good observation. Um, and you're right. We own quite a few classic compounders, if you will. Um, I would, I would put Apple into the category, Danaher, Berkshire, Markel, um, Parker Hanson, I would put into that category. And then we have a few that don't, don't fit the mold at, at first glance. Uh, maybe Vontier, uh, maybe Finia, um, which is a recent spinoff, um, arguably one or two others, depending on your perspective. But now I'll say it goes back to the aging process, right? I mean, we, we talked about the ideal investment and, and how you're making a trade-off always and everywhere. Um, a lot of those stocks that I mentioned as a classic compounder, it wasn't clear that they were going to be classic compounders when we made the investment, right? I mean, when we bought Apple in the summer of 2016, it was very cheap because people thought it was the next Nokia or the next BlackBerry, right? And it, it was just selling a widget that was going to be commoditized. And I, nobody thinks that today, but had you look at the portfolio in 2016, you, you know, you might add a question about why does Apple fit in here? Um, same with Danaher. We bought it in 2011. Um, it was digesting a large acquisition called Beckman Coulter um, and having some issues there. So, it had been a compounder in the past. And then there were questions about whether it would be a compounder in the future. Had they had they lost their touch or something? And we didn't think that was true, but we didn't know. I mean, you, nobody knows the future, right? Uh, we're just all guessing at the future. Um, and it ended up being, we ended up being right, and it, it didn't lose its touch. They got through that acquisition and have done a lot of very successful ones after. But you might have looked at the portfolio then and thought, well, maybe Danaher doesn't fit. Uh, Similar story with Parker Hanson. When we bought it in 2018, it was digesting ClearCore, the largest acquisition in its history. And Fed was raising rates. It seemed like there might be an industrial recession coming and it got very cheap. And it got through the cloud. In, in hindsight, it got through the ClearCore acquisition just fine. Did a lot more sense. Um, very great company, but it might not have fit the mold. So, and just 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 making making a point there that just because something might look like it doesn't fit today doesn't mean that if we have this conversation in five years that uh, that it won't then fit. So you know maybe if, if we can use Montier as 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 an example, which is a stock that we own, it was a spinoff of Fortif, which was itself a spinoff of Danaher, um, and Montier is actually the the, the original industrial assets of Danaher, it was a real estate investment trust, actually. And uh, and the Rail Brothers came in and, and bought some industrial assets. And it was Jabarco Vita Root, which is a essentially they make gas pumps and underground tanks and things of that nature for gas station operators, which is pretty much a duopoly in the United States between them and a, a division of Dover um, and it's a great business, but at the time of the spinoff, um, they, they were they had some issues because uh, the gas pump business had just gone through a bubble in the United States because there were some regulatory uh, requirements um, in terms of payment systems that required virtually every gas station operator to, to upgrade their pump. So there had been a big bubble in demand at Vontier, and Ford had spun it out right then. And it was well communicated to the market management had talked about it there was definitely going to be a decline the financials weren't going to look that great for for at least a year or two um but 
you could you could make some very conservative estimates and see that the stock was still trading despite that bubble in demand. It's below 10 times earnings. Um, and the gas pump business is actually a great business. And it's going to be here with us for a very long time because the internal combustion engine, even if EVs take over pretty quickly, there's still going to be a fleet to service and, and hybrids are going to have a part in the future and hybrids need, need to be fueled. So it, it's a good business with a long lifespan and, and it does have Danaher DNA. You know, they, they, they've done some other acquisitions that have proved to, to be pretty wise. Um, I think DRB, they, they acquired a company that sells software to, um, to car washes, which is like the big tunnel car washes you see. And they ended up getting a, a good price on it in hindsight. And so, I, you know, who knows? Dan, you know, Volunteer, uh, it, it may not look like it fits the mold today, but uh, let's have a conversation in five years and, and see if it does then. Only time will tell. I think that's a good segue to my question about cell discipline. You mentioned the benefit or the attraction of just finding a few good investments and holding on to them for the long run. Maybe you can talk about cell discipline and how that is different when something is perceived to be more ideal versus less ideal. Yeah, that, that is, that is a great, great question. And you know, the, the buying decision is obviously very difficult, but the selling decision is so much harder uh especially if you have a great company then it makes it just so difficult um because if you if you think about we, we like to think about investing as kind of this endless true false exam where you know the 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 question being asked is what is the true value of this company and the answer that you're you're given is the price in the market and if if it falls within your range a value estimate, whatever that is, then the answer is probably true. And that's the case for most stocks because markets are fairly efficient. And in that case, we do nothing. You know, if uh, if we don't own the stock, we won't buy it. And if we do own it, then we're just not going to sell it. We're just going to hang on to it. And the problem with that is, or, or what makes it so difficult is that range of values can be quite, quite huge. And if you think of back to statistical, you know, your class and, you know, your stats class, you know, there, there's the normal distribution bell curve. Well, what we've found with experience, you know, the hard way selling too early is that great companies don't seem to be normally distributed. The, the range of values, they seem to have a fat tail and that they can be worth a hell of a lot more than you ever thought they, they were worth. Um, and they just can continue to surprise you and what they can accomplish. So you just have to be very careful of, of, answering false to the question and selling solely on price um, if, if it's a great company and doesn't mean we we won't we have in the past um, but we're just very very reluctant to do that um, there, there there really needs to be something fundamental that's that's going on that, that also gives us concern for us just to sell a, a great company it's helpful context when it comes to thinking about the types of companies you invest in I'd love to talk a little bit about portfolio construction. You talked about concentration already. Maybe just talk about limits for single stocks, do you, especially when it comes to sell discipline. Do you, do you have set rules about when you have to sell something? What, what do position sizes typically look at? Do you have starter positions? Maybe just give us a sense for how position sizing works for you. Yeah, so... Um... A, a typical position for us to start out 
is anywhere from three to six percent. You know, that's that's generally where we start out. Um, but we'll let it run. You know, we'll let a winter run, and and we have portfolios where the largest position might be twenty percent. You know, and and that's that's okay with us. We don't have any forced rule that makes us sell something just because it's gotten large. Now, I will say in our contracts with clients, we do have position and industry limits, but it only applies to buying something. So like for a a single position, we will not buy a stock once it gets to 10% of the portfolio. doesn't mean we can't let it continue to run and get much higher, but we're not going to buy it. We cannot buy it. And that 10% really gives us a buffer because like I said, our our starting positions tend to be three to 6%. So we never buy up to 10%. It's just a lot of buffer there. And the industry limit is 25%. Again, we, we, we really never get there. The only place we get close is, is on insurance. We do own quite a bit of insurance, um, but that's the only place where we're even remotely close to the 25% limit. Since you brought up insurance, I did notice a, a, an obvious affinity uh, when I look through your portfolio and we've talked about Markel, we've talked about Berkshire, which has a lot of insurance. Uh, talk to me about why that's such an interesting space for you. Um, obviously, it's been historically an interesting space for for Banyan, but also what attracts you um, to that space now that you have your your hands on the on the wheel. Yeah, so my my first love was actually insurance, even before investing, which is kind of strange to say, and uh, <laughs> probably tells you that I'm you know, a little, little little off at times. But I, you know, I, I really fell in love with insurance when I was in law school as well. Uh, and all, all the internships that I did um, were either at an insurance company or, or at a company that was insurance adjacent. So I would work at what's called captive insurance managers. So we would form these small captive insurance companies and, and manage those. And I wrote a couple of articles um, on the industry while I was in school. And so I, I've always liked the industry, which is another reason that, that there was a great meeting of the minds between Gary and I, because he had clearly had, had an affinity for, for insurance companies in the portfolio. And it's something that I always liked. And it just so happens that insurance companies can be great businesses if, if they're in the hands of a savvy investor, because, you know, there's this concept of float where, you know, a policy, someone gets an insurance policy, they pay a premium today and then claims if they're paid out at all on that policy, it will be later. So, so long as your, your insurance business isn't shrieking, you, you have this constant pool of float that, that's just sitting there for you to invest on, on the owner's behalf. And if you're underwriting for a profit, say you have a, a 10% underwriting profit or what's in the industry is called a combined ratio of 90%. Um, then it is as if you're borrowing that money uh, at negative 10% interest. So you, if, you, if you do that and you put it in the hands of someone that's a savvy investor, they can you can get some low risk but levered equity returns that can persist for decades. I mean, that's been shown by Berkshire, shown by Markel. We owned a company called Allegheny. Um, it was bought by Berkshire. Um, same thing. So Yes, I do love insurance. Always have, and again, it's just it happens to be a wonderful business if uh, if you can find the ones that are run right. Well, I don't know if you've listened to the interview that Todd Combs did um, on the art of investing, 
but the description that he, you know, his journey being an insurance regulator, I guess, in the state of Florida, I mean, yeah. talk about a guy who also fell in love with the nuances of insurance. So I <laughs> yeah, throw yeah. that out there as a, as something that, you know, our listeners and, and if you haven't listened to that interview, it's totally worth listening to. Uh, so we talked about concentration. Um, was, have you changed anything about the, the, the Banyan way of, of concentration? Are you more or less concentrated than, than, than was in the past or is it kind of steady as she goes and you've evolved to kind of be very comfortable with the current level of concentration? Yeah, I, I don't think there's really been any change in, in how concentrated we are. Um, you know, maybe just a hair more concentrated, but I, I don't, I wouldn't say so. It's, uh, you know, it's, we just always thought it, it makes sense to own 15 or 20 stocks. I mean, why, why would you want to put money in your 21st best idea? Just put a little bit more in your best couple ideas. And, you know, I, I was listening to an interview of Charlie Munger right before he died by Becky Quick. It was aired on CNBC, I believe, um, last week. And, he made a comment that you know, applies here. He said that you're only going to get a few times at the pie, at the pie counter in life. And, and when you when you are at the pie counter, you have to be able to get a big serving, right? You have to help yourself because you're only going to get a few opportunities there. And and if you're if you have a some arbitrary limit on position sizing of, say, two percent, I mean, you you can't get a, a big helping. Right. And that, that just, that, that just, it doesn't give you enough leeway. Um, <clears throat> but sometimes you're, you think you're at the counter and come to find out the pie is rotten, <laughs> you know? So we also don't want to, don't want to pile on too much and, and I'm 15, you know, make it a 15% position, you know, so you know, three to 6%, maybe closer to 6% just, just feels, feels right to us you know it gives us the leeway to, to make a bet that's going to be significant and matter for clients but it's not so large that if we're wrong it really takes us out of the game it's um we can manage through that and i'm tr interested in getting a i guess a a barometer or a measurement of your contrarian streak it was interesting to me to to see that you have owned altria a cigarette company in the past obviously there's a lot of scorn thrown at that industry how often are you intentionally looking for things that other people shun for some reason when you're creating a portfolio? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that's an interesting question. And <clears throat> so we are contrarian. Uh, I think every value investor to a degree has a contrarian streak. I mean, almost by definition, if you're going to get something in a bargain price, then you have to have some view that is, different than consensus right you have to think the house odds if you will or not are, are in your favor um so there is something contrarian about that but we don't try to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian right we're not going to jump in front of a mac truck because nobody else will jump in front of a mac truck the stock has to be cheap for the wrong reasons and but specifically to altria it was kind of a unique situation um, for us and, and a unique type of investment. Um, it was, so at the time we had just sold discovery communications. It was early 2021 and it had gotten caught in a, caught up in this strange hedge fund strategy, Archegos, which I don't know what he was trying to accomplish, but anyways, he drove the stock up like three X in just a few months. We sold discovery and had this, large pile of cash that was rotting away 
in terms of inflation because, you know, treasuries didn't pay anything. And, you know, we, we, we looked at Altria as a bit of a, an alternative at the time, which is a strange way to look at it, but it's a very steady eddy business and has been for a very, very long time. It was paying out a, an eight to 9% dividend yield and it was very well covered and stock doesn't tend to move too much. Um, so we, we thought, you know, this might be a, this is a good safe Harbor to, to keep this pile of cash from rotting away at least for a while. Um, so we, we did that and we held it until early this year. Um, early this year, treasury yields obviously had risen a lot, um, especially at the short end of the curve. And we could just, we could get 5% on, on six month treasury bills. So it, Altria really didn't serve a purpose in the portfolio anymore. So we moved on and just put it in six month treasury bills. Um, so I, again, it was Altria was kind of a unique, unique situation. It wasn't something that we said, hey, this checks all the, characteristics of an ideal investment we want to own and it was more of you know this is a, a quasi cash alternative we can kind of find safe harbor in for a little while until we can find a better use uh better place for this money and i believe you mentioned that one of the reasons that you sold um altria was the had to do with capital allocation um maybe talk a little bit about your the process you've developed for assessing management acumen and capital allocation and how important because I do I do think management was one of the you know the seven pillars right like so tell yeah. me <clears throat> tell me how important it is and what the process looks like for assessing management yeah so so it did play a part in in Altria I must admit it was uh, it just made the decision that much easier so before we ever invested, they made a disastrous investment in this this vaping company called Jewel. Um, but it cost the CEO his job, and we thought the new CEO Billy Gifford had, had really learned a lesson. So we thought he'd kind of taken that that issue off the table. But right around the time we were thinking about shifting the the money and Altria into six month Treasury bills, um, Billy decided to buy another vaping company called Enjoy, much smaller, but still it just. It just sent the wrong signal, in our opinion, that you know maybe they didn't learn the right lesson. So it's it's best we do move on. Um, so it it did play in a, in a role there. But as for how we assess management, it, it's anyone that tells you it, you can quantify the quality of management is probably you know blowing smoke. Uh, it's it's a very subjective type of analysis, and and we found that it is more of a negative art than a positive art, in that it's. It's hard for us to really say, yes, this CEO is a great CEO uh, or this management team is great. Um, but we can say, ah, these people are not good, right? And, and we can eliminate companies because of that. So again, we, we've just found it to be a much more of a negative art than, than a positive art in that sense. And you clearly are a bottom-up style investor. You love companies. I mean, you, you you obviously are in the weeds with the companies you own. I'm interested in how your views of the macro environment impact portfolio construction and security selection, if at all. Yeah, I find that I'm I am worst. I'm at my worst as an investor when I'm thinking the most about <clears throat> the macro environment. Um, it just tends to be unanswerable questions that just will send you down a rabbit hole. Um, and if you just, if you can get a great business um, that's well run and you, you don't overpay for it, <laughs> it'll, it'll just tend to overwhelm any sort of macro issue that it encounters, right? It'll, it'll just kind of get through it. Um, 
But having said that, I don't put my head in the sand, you know, and, and ignore what's going on around me. I, I, I do study history and markets because I, I think it is important uh, to understand where you're at and what's happened in the past. Um, so I just, I did a study of past interest rate hiking cycles uh, about a month ago. And, you know, there, there's some, there's some learnings there that, that, that have influenced at least how I think. Um, so, you know, if you, if you just take the last hiking cycle, for instance, the, the last real hiking cycle was right before the financial crisis. Um, you know, rates began to rise in June of 2004 and then they peaked in June 2006, right around current levels. And um, banking issues didn't really begin to, to show up until early 2007. And then the, the famous collapse of the Bear Stearns mortgage hedge funds was in July of 2007. But, you know, what, what was interesting is that the Dow Jones peaked in October of 2007. You know, so well after the end of the hiking cycle and after issues had already emerged in, in the economy. And, you know, it just it just really drives home the point that, you know, there are long and variable lags. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting around trying to predict interest rates or what the macro environment is going to do. You know, I'm not selling stocks or anything crazy like that. It's just it does it does just impress upon at least me that we don't know yet how the rise of interest rates is going to affect the economy and to simply look at how the stock market is performing right now or over the last few months is probably more noise than signal um it's just going to take time and um you know we're we're we're, we're cautious and we're gonna we're gonna wait and see but um you know i just i, I do that's just a long-winded way of saying we, we do study history and do pay attention to, to what's going on in, in the economy but yeah, it's not um, it's not something that that dominates our thinking. And you've mentioned a couple times uh, the aging process of securities and and how different stocks age is important to you. You also, in one of your letters, talk about evolution and selection processes, and you know, kind of like a from a Darwinian perspective. I'm interested in in how that influences the way that you assess businesses, the way you select securities, because it just seems like it's something you've thought deeply about. Yeah, it is influential to us. Um, you know, it's uh, evolutionary forces. Just it's not it's not restricted to to the domain of biology. It's just that happens to be the area where it's most studied and most well-known. I think that it applies as much to commerce as it does to biology. Um, you know, you, 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 things evolve and, and you know, a, a company is just a, a commercial organism that is trying to survive in a niche and do battle against the, you know, the forces of entropy that are trying to break it down. And, and, you know, that's in their various forms of selection pressure, right? So a company has to sell a product to earn, you know, earn something. And, and consumers are going to make a decision based on the differentiating traits of that product. And, and if they prefer one product to another, the, the preferred product is going to grow. And so is the company that is responsible for that product. And, and it just create, you know, that's how that a, a company and a product set will evolve or a market will evolve over time. And, 
there's just a lot of analogies or, or um, similarities between biology and commerce in that sense. So I, I just think that a lot of insights can be gleaned from from study, studying some of um, some of what we already know is going on in biology and, and applying it to the, to the world of commerce. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And you mentioned that great companies list that you maintain. I assume there's a lot of, you know, kind of the evolutionary winners on that list. I'm curious, um, what's the process for updating, maintaining that list? Maybe give us a sense of how large it is. You know, I'm just, you're, you're, you know, again, you're getting to the small team aspect, having a database of companies that you can go back to uh, consistently is probably really helpful, especially in times like March of 2020, when there was an opportunity to put some, some capital to work. So I'm just curious about how, how that list is constructed and how you use it um, to kind of leverage your own bandwidth and time. Yeah, so it, it is. It is companies that do tend to be winners of the evolutionary process. Um, in, in other words, they they definitely satisfy the first six attributes of the ideal investment. The only um, thing that they might not satisfy is the bargain the bargain price, the seventh attribute. Um, the list is bounces around between 130 and 150 companies. Um, we're always taking some off and putting some on. Um, and it does help us just stay focused um, and, and keep an eye out for um, for any opportunities. Uh, and so I have you'll see some boards behind me. These are some of the companies on the list and prices that I would pay for them. Um, so if a company gets close to it, I'll just update the file and it gets close to a price I'll pay. I'll update the file and put it on the board. And that way I'm ready to act if, um, if it gets there. And another, I guess, trick I've found is, you know, I, I have two two fish bowls um, in my office, and one fish fish bowl at the beginning of the year will have a marble in it for every work day in that year, and then the other fish bowl will be empty. And anytime I read a financial statement or read a, a transcript on a quarterly call, I get to move a marble to the to the empty fish bowl. And at the end of the year, all of the marbles must be moved every single year. And then once the calendar turns over, you just flip the, the, the bowls around and start over. And it just keeps you constantly studying and it just keeps you honest about how much ground you're covering. Um, and if you think about that, I mean, if you have a list of 150 companies and you're moving those marbles like you should be, I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at those companies or looking at their financials at some point every year, probably. So it just keeps you up to date. And um, I just, I find it to be a useful trick that helps. I love that. And I love that you, you know, you, you actually physically move it as opposed to this is some (laughs) kind of like metaphorical thing. That's, that's fascinating to me. It seems like you have structured the firm and the philosophy and the process, um, to attract the right type of investor who, you know, kind of fits with, with what the, what, what you're trying to accomplish. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that client looks like and where, if at all, institutional investors could play within that client base at some point. 
Yeah, uh, it goes back to, you know, you make your home and then your home makes you. Well, you make your business and then your business makes you. So we need clients that 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 really think like we do. Um, and and that tends to be high net worth individuals. Um, and we, we tend to, to manage money for multiple generations. So we'll get a client and then we'll manage money for their children and then we'll manage money for their grandchildren and then we'll introduce us to their extended family. Um so that's, that's kind of how Banyan has evolved. And that, that is the, the type of client that, that we serve. Um, doesn't mean an institutional client wouldn't fit that mold. It could, but we don't, we don't manage any money for any institutions today. Um, and, you know, maybe we will in the future, but it, um, we're, we're fine just, just serving, you know, high net worth individuals that, that have a long-term mindset. And one of the questions we always ask our guests is what success would look like to them. I'll just give you an anecdote. It's interesting to me that almost no one we've asked that had asset growth as a a stated goal. Like we want to get to X billion, X hundred million in assets, which I appreciate a lot, but it's all, you're also running a business. So I'm interested if we're having this conversation seven years from now, what would success look like to you? Yeah, that's that's a hard question to answer. Uh, I'm not going to give you an AUM goal either. Um, unsurprisingly, uh, it's you know we just focus on putting one foot in front of the other, right? Each and every day, and trying to be better investors. You know, get a little bit more rational, get a little bit smarter when we leave the office each day, and we just figure. If we can do that and continue to build trust with the clients we have, then growth will take care of itself, and we'll have more success than you know than we can dream of. So that's to us. That's that's what we're focused on. And you know, let's talk in seven years, and, and I'll tell you if I think it's been a success or not. <laughs> and you mentioned getting a little bit better every day. Um, I think, at least personally, my mistakes have been. Um, more influential than successes in terms of helping me become a better investor. I'd love to hear about a historical mistake that you've made that has led to a change in your philosophy or process so that you don't have to make that same mistake again. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think this is the best question that you can ask investors. Um, They they should have a a good example here uh, to share. And I most certainly do. Um, it's uh, we, we made a mistake with Altice, which is a smaller cable company is run by or, or controlled by a gentleman named Patrick Drahi. He's a European billionaire. Um, you know, it goes back to, you know, what the wise the wise banker always says, beware usurious rates of interest. Right. There's usually something that you're missing. And, and we should have been. You know, more aware and, and we were seduced by a cheap valuation back to what Gary had taught me, right? Sometimes it takes a, a loss to really steer that that lesson in. And uh boy Altice definitely seared that lesson in. It's uh we we were again seduced by a cheap equity valuation um to overlook or at least um accept more sacrifices on the other six attributes of an ideal investment than we typically would. Um I think that the main takeaway for me was if you have an investment thesis that is really the bulk of it revolves around valuation is how cheap something is, then it's probably not going to work out. You know, your thesis should revolve around the business and 
valuation ought to be at the end and just, okay, yes, this is a good price giving everything else that I've said and know about the company. It's fair. Maybe it's even a bargain, but uh, it's just not going to keep me from making the investment. If again, if your investment thesis is driven by the valuation, then you, you're, you're on the wrong track. I'll add one thing that's been personally a mistake of mine. It's not even just evaluation, but it's what someone else might pay for that asset can yeah. be uh could be a very seductive thing looking at market multiples or transaction multiples right and it just that that who the, the who might buy this thing uh whatever exercise really can take away the focus from the business and and really put too much emphasis on the price absolutely and and you know another another learning that 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 we certainly found out is you have to take the whole enterprise into account. If you're just focused on the equity, you can miss a lot. And you you gotta you gotta think about, you know, what is what is the company valued at as a whole? Right? If I wanted to buy the entire thing and and if you're just focused on the equity, you can get these over leveraged equity stubs that look very cheap, but at the enterprise level they're actually not cheap. Um and that was that was um that was a takeaway from Altice as well. I mean, we're we we're much more focused on the enterprise as a whole and what it is trading at, which includes its debt, right? Its market value of the equity and the debt, as opposed to just looking at the equity. There are a lot of things about the Banyan philosophy that have been really resonated with me as I was looking through your materials. And this may be a small thing, but I I think it's unique. In that I saw on your website that you have a bullet point that says employees are not allowed to buy stocks that the firm's clients don't own. I've always thought it was weird that some investment people have like their PA stocks and then there's stocks that are then then different stocks they own for their clients as if their PA stocks are not somehow not appropriate for clients, but they're appropriate for themselves. What, how have you approached that? And what is the purpose of that rule? I mean, it just makes sense to me. I, I can't imagine not doing that. I mean, if, if it's good enough for my personal account, why is it not good enough for my clients? And if it's good enough for my clients, why is it not good enough for my personal account and Charlene's personal account and whoever else is, is here at Banyan? So um, it's just, you know, we, we want we want clients to know we're in the same boat as them. You know, if, if they're, if, if, if we make a mistake like we do with Altice, then it, it doesn't only hurt them. It hurts me. It hurts Charlene, hurts us all. Um, and we also win together, right? When we buy Apple, we're all, you know, they win, I win, Charlene wins, everybody wins. And it also eliminates this, this decision you have to make every day, right? If you, if you have certain stocks in your personal account and certain stocks in your client accounts, you come in every day and you say, whose portfolio am I working on, right? Am I going to work on my accounts today or am I going to work on my clients' accounts today? And if everybody owns the same thing, you just don't have to make that decision. You know, every account, you know, you just come on and work on the Banyan portfolio. Um, so it, I, I do. I also find it very bizarre that that's not the norm. And it's, but it just makes sense to us. Well, Drew, we've covered a lot in this podcast, especially among the kind of the, or, or specifically around the kind of unique 
perspectives and philosophies that that Banyan has has um, had for years, and obviously you have you have um, kind of absorbed as well. So we'll close this podcast with a question we ask all of our manager guests: What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity set you're pursuing at Banyan? Yeah, I uh, think I would just speak generally here. Um, if you know, as an equity investor, you're you're essentially long human progress, and you know that that's really been a, a great bet to make uh, ever since the industrial revolution, so a few centuries ago, and I, and I think it'll be true for the next few centuries. Uh, we we obviously face issues as a nation and and across the globe, but I, I truly believe that there's there's no better time to be born than today in human history and i i really believe there's no better place to be born in human history than today in america and i just think if you can keep that you know at the at the center of your your philosophy um i just i think that you'll make the right decisions and and you should be in equities right equities are the place to be. it doesn't mean that it'll be up and to the right you know and, and we won't have some setbacks of course we will but you just you you want to be you want to be long human progress and i, I think it's as true today as it's ever been well, that is a perfect place to close. Drew, thank you so much for being on Compounders. This was a very fun conversation uh, and um, we'll be watching your career very carefully over the next few years. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here.